This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for how you speak to us with clarity through your word. We thank you um, for what you want to say to us tonight. And I want to ask that you would encourage uh, everyone in the room tonight through your holy word. I pray that in particular uh, you would stir faith in hearts uh, of those who feel they have nothing to contribute and nothing to give in the kingdom. I pray that you would grant us a great vision for what you have uh, in store for every one of our lives and uh, for our church as well. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's always sad to me to kind of, uh, it's always exciting to start a new series. It's always sad to leave one. So we're leaving one today. This is our last time in, uh, in Genesis. Next week, we start a, uh, a series on sex. It's called Redeeming Sex. It'll be probably seven, maybe eight weeks, not really sure. Um, and so just uh, the recommendation starting next week would be some families keep their children with them here rather than sending, sending them to children's ministry. Uh, I would really recommend you send them to children's ministry uh, next week. But I am very mindful that there are sixth grade or I guess now kids going into seventh grade because we haven't promoted up. But uh, there are kids who are in uh, who just completed sixth grade and up in the room. I'm very mindful of that. I met with the parents of middle school and high schoolers last night and told them all about the series more than I've told anybody in the church, uh, more than I've told the pastors, actually, because I was, I, I realized that, man, I'm telling these guys all kinds. So you guys know, those people who are at that meeting know the whole purpose of the series and what I'm going to say and what I'm not going to say with regard to middle school and high schoolers. So I'll put the notes up from what I shared uh, on the city in the, in the Equip group. That's the parents of teenagers group called Equipped. Go to the city, get in that group, and I'll have the, I'll have the notes for you there so you'll know what we're going to be talking about. Uh, and uh, also, and you can follow up with your kids as we go through the series. So next week, that's what we start, Redeeming Sex. It'll be a very, very sex-positive, for the way God designed it kind of a series. Uh, trying to understand what are God's, what's God's design for human sexuality, and how is this gift to be stewarded for his glory, um, because it has great power to bring him honor and uh, to be a blessing in, in, the, in, um, in marriage, or it has great power to destroy a life. Uh, and so we, we want to talk about that, and, and I hope it'll be, uh, it will be interesting. I will tell you that. It will be interesting uh, for sure. Okay, here's, here's, uh, here's how I want to review Genesis 1 through 11. There's a lot of ways we could review this for a recap. Uh, we could look historically at everything that happened, um, but I want to highlight a pattern. Pete highlighted a pattern during the prayer time, and I want to highlight a different pattern that happens uh, in Genesis 1 through 11, and uh, we'll see it tonight as we, as we finish up and as we close up. Here's the pattern. That in Genesis 1 through 11, what we see is is people in various contexts rebelling against a good God. And then we see God bringing judgment, and then we see God bringing grace and promise and hope to sinful people. So here's kind of how it works. At the beginning, God creates this perfect world. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in a perfect garden and uh, they're, they're to work and they're to enjoy their relationship with one another in marriage. They're to enjoy God and their relationship with him. And then what happens is he says they, they can eat from any tree in the garden. There's only one they can eat from. God gives all this open permission to them with a sole restriction. And Eve 
crosses that soul restriction. Adam crosses that restriction, and they eat the fruit they were forbidden to eat because they wanted to be like God. And uh, so what happened after that? Well, there was judgment, and God uh, brought death to them, as he said, spiritual death and later physical death. Death that separated them from God, spiritual death that separated them from one another and made marriage difficult, Uh, spiritual death that uh, also resulted in their being removed from the garden. And so uh, what we see happening in there is that there is a judgment, there's a curse upon man, and then there is also a great work of grace and hope because God tells them that I will send one who will bring salvation in essence. I'll bring, send one who will bruise the serpent's head, the seed of the woman. It's a promise that Jesus would come. So there's grace. Even though they fell, They still live, and God has a promise that one will come to redeem them. Uh, Then Cain, the next character, he sins. He offers a token offering to the Lord, uh, which was not, it really wasn't in his heart. He envies his brother. He murders his brother, and God brings judgment. God says, you will be a wanderer for your life. But then God brings grace because he says, I'm going to put a mark on you. We do not know what that mark was, but I'm going to put a mark on you so that no one will kill you. And that means you're going to get to continue to live, even though you've done something worthy of death. So uh, that was grace to him. And then how about the story of uh, Noah? The people in Noah's day, it says that that, uh, as time went on, people got more and more rebellious towards God. And what the scripture tells us is that the people, all their thoughts all the time were evil. They They were violent. They were corrupt. And so God, again, brings judgment. This time he destroys, it's devastating judgment, he destroys the earth by flood. But there's grace and hope in it because he preserves the human race. He preserves Noah and his family on an ark, which is a picture of his salvation and pointed forward to his salvation in Christ. And he gives a great sign of hope, doesn't he? Grace, the rainbow, that whenever we see that in the sky forever, we will remember the kindness of God, that though he could destroy the earth again, he will not do that by water. Uh, and there's, there's this picture of grace. Now we come to the last one, and we see how it ties in at the end of uh, chapter 11. The, pe- uh, the people are called to scatter and to, uh, to multiply all over the earth, but the people gather in the plain of Shinar, and they, describe, they decide they're going to build a tower to God, the Tower of Babel. And uh, so what they do is they want to build a name for themselves. They want to uh, protect themselves by staying unified and not scattering, even though God told them to scatter. Uh, They're proud. They're basing security on their own ingenuity and their own ability, and God judges them. What does he do? He confuses everybody's language, and he scatters them. But then there's grace. What is the grace? Well, we haven't read it. It's this week. It's not. I'm telling you everything we've read, but this week, the grace is the account of Abram. I'm going to call him Abraham. He's Abram at the beginning, but his, I'm probably going to get confused about this, but his name is changed to Abraham later. So God comes to a guy named Abraham and he offers, he calls him and makes a covenant with him and uh, brings hope for salvation. So what happens if we look in verses 10 through 26, this is chapter 11, it begins, these are the generations of Shem. Shem is a son of Noah. Shem was 100 years old. He fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And then there is a lineage, one family after another. And then when we come to, I'm going to skip over it. When we come to verse 26, one of Shem's ancestors, so that means one of Noah's ancestors, because Shem is Noah's kid. uh, Verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
So then we get this guy named Abram, Abram appears. And then in verses 27 through 32, we get the story of Terah and Abram and their, their descendants. Verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where they lived. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai, who I may call her Sarah because that's what her name's changed to later. Uh, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And I know I said Genesis 1-11, through but we're going to go three bonus verses uh, into chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what happens after Babel? Well, there is judgment and the people scatter, but, but what we see next is God singling a guy out and saying, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to make your name great. In the Tower of Babel, they built a tower to make their name great. By grace, God comes to Abraham and says, I will make your name great. And I'm going to do wonderful words, works through you. I'm going to bring salvation to the nations. The nations are scattered, but I'm going to bring salvation to the nations through you. And ultimately, Jesus will come through his line. Now, as we've talked about this and looked at Noah, I've tried to make the point, uh, because I just think it's so important, is that uh, we, we have this propensity to play Bible superhero uh, I remember seeing, you used to make, I don't know if they still do, but they used to make little like superhero figures of Bible characters. And there's, but there's only one superhero. That's a problem. In the Bible, there's only one guy who's a superhero and he's the God man, Jesus Christ. All the other characters of the Bible are flawed like you and I are. And at times they do things that are worthy of emulation. Like Abraham's a man of great faith. His faith is worthy of our imitation. But they're human, and God often shows us things about them, their failures, their weaknesses, their history. God shows us things about them to highlight it's the grace of God that works to build his people. It's not Bible superheroes who are like almost perfect, uh, who are wonderful, but they are failed people. And in this passage we're gonna, that we just read, one of the things we're going to see is that God reveals his grace by working through unlikely people in unlikely circumstances, because Abraham is a very unlikely guy, and he is in very unlikely circumstances. And the reason we see God working through him is because it's going to magnify the grace of God. We just had people trying to build a tower to heaven, and they've been scattered in judgment, and now we're going to see God, by his grace, continue 
one to bring salvation to the planet, and that's because he's gracious, and he picks, number one, an unlikely guy. So I want to talk about unlikely people. I want to talk about unlikely circumstances for God to work in. First of all, unlikely people. Now, Abraham is huge in the Bible. Uh, in, in the faith chapter in Hebrews 11, he gets, uh, I think he gets uh, uh, more verses than, than uh, a number of the other people there. He is an honored guy. He, it is, people refer to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name is on the nameplate. When people talk about God, he's the first name mentioned. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a big deal in the Bible. He's the father of our faith, we could say. He's the person that God comes and makes a covenant with, a commitment with, to save uh, everyone who will believe in him and ultimately believe in Jesus. So he's huge in the Bible. But when we look at this text, if we were to say, what qualifies Abraham to be the father of our faith, we may be surprised at what we find. Here's what we find. He is, verse 27, he is the son of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. And, uh, and he lived, verse 28, he lived in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. So he lives in this environment. His family is from Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. And that is a pagan environment. He is among the nations of people that are not following God, don't know God, but that have been scattered by God. So he is a, in a pagan nation, and he is in a city that historians and scholars say were known primarily as a city for moon worship. That is, that's where he lives. He lives as, presumably, he himself is, a moon worshiper, living in a pagan city, worshiping a pagan god, uh, a moon god. Now, some scholars say, uh, that actually the name Terra, his father's name, can be translated uh, moon, and that his, sis- his sister-in-law and his wife, Milka, and his wife, Sarah, that they're both named after pagan princesses, uh, pagan goddesses, rather. So uh, the, their names, that's somewhat speculative. The fact that he lived in a town that was a, a, the center of lunar worship, that is not up for debate. And here's what's not up for the debate in the Bible. He's an idolater. He's not a monotheist. He worships many gods, the Bible tells us. Doesn't say moon, but he lives in the moon god place. Probably worships the moon, but he worships many gods. This is what uh, Joshua 24, Joshua 24 says. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah... Ding, ding, ding. That's where we are. Genesis 11. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So God comes to a guy who's serving other gods. He's an idolater. He is embedded in a culture of idolatry. He is not a good Jewish boy that loves Yahweh and is teaching the book of Genesis down at the men's Bible study at the synagogue. That's not who he is. None of that existed when he was here anyway, but he's not doing that. That's not who Abraham is. He is a pagan. He is a, a worshiper of other gods, according to Joshua 20. The text also introduces us to the wives of uh, this family. So if we read in verse 29, uh, Abraham and Nahor, they're the brothers, they took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. Now, we don't know now, but if you read in Genesis and go on later, you're going to find out that's his half-sister. Guy marries 
his half-sister. Okay, And then the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. Haran is Nahor's brother, if you look at verse 27. So uh, this guy, Nahor, marries his niece. So this family, now there was no biblical law against that at this point. There was the law of, uh, you know, in essence, how God created. There's Genesis 2, the account of Adam and Eve, uh, and that God created a man and a woman for marriage. That's in the Bible. Um, but, but there's no law until after. We, we don't get the law until, you know, well after uh, Abraham when uh, Moses brings the law. Uh, however, I'm pointing this out, that they are marrying in their family something that will be forbidden by God. I'm, the reason I'm pointing that out is this guy doesn't have Bible instincts. He doesn't have the natural instincts to be someone who is righteous. So God's not looking down and saying, there was one righteous man at the lunar worship city, and it was this guy. No, this guy's marrying family. This guy, the Bible tells us, worships other gods. He is an unlikely candidate to be the father of our faith, to be the the one who God makes covenant with. In other words, God doesn't come searching out the best guy, the most moral guy, the most righteous guy, the wisest theological guy. God picks Abraham, and we don't know why, but he picks him. I I read a comment from Kent Hughes in a commentary that just, I just wrote this down, I'm ready to, you. it just stood out to me. About these verses, this is what he said. The most important thing is that we understand at this time, Terah's tiny inbred family uh, were moon worshipers residing in the leading center of lunar religion. I just had to read, I read that, I wrote it down. So I'm going to read that to you. I had to go read that again. I'm going, what we need to realize is this guy's in an inbred family in the center of lunar worship. And most of us don't think when we read our Bibles that we would think that guy's disqualified at every level for God to be using him. And yet he is a leading character in all of the Bible once God gets a hold of him and changes his life. Why is that important? Because God displays his grace by choosing unlikely people to fulfill his purposes. And that should bring tremendous hope to us, that God uses the people you don't expect. This is what you see in the ministry of Jesus. He did not pick most likely to succeed religiously. He rebuked those people. Jesus came to the people who were needy, who saw their need, who knew they were sinners, who, who humbled themselves before him and not the self-righteous. God, this is an overarching theme in the Bible, that God graciously comes to who he wants to come to and works through whom he wants to work through, and it's often not the people we would pick. It's often surprising. And the reason I bring this up is because there's some of us in the room tonight that, that, that we don't really feel like God would ever use us. We, we don't feel like we're likely candidates to be used by God. Can I tell you that none of us are? None of us are likely candidates as sinners to be used by God. But God chooses to use unlikely people. Yeah, I mean, you may be a person who by your background, you think, I don't think the Lord could use me. Now, I don't think the main purpose of this is to say that, that God uses people from pagan backgrounds, and if that's your background, be encouraged. I don't think that's the central idea, but I think it's an important idea, because in a minute I'm going to show that this is throughout the Scripture, and especially in the ministry of Jesus, this truth, um, that, that, that God is more powerful than our background, that you are, not, uh, you are not enslaved or trapped by your background when it comes to encountering the God of grace. You're not. 
Um, God does stuff through us regardless because he is merciful. And when he works through unlikely people, his grace shines the brightest. When people look and say, wow, God did that through her. God did that through him. God is great. See, people, 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 uh, God, people are impressed by God when he works through people who may not be quite as impressive as what everyone would expect. And maybe you feel that tonight. Maybe you feel limited. Maybe you didn't grow up marrying a relative and worshiping a planet, but you, you grew up as someone in your background that did not know the Lord. You did not come from a Christian home. You do not have a Christian background, and now you've become a Christian, perhaps as an adult, and you just feel like, what do I have to offer people? What, what do I have to contribute? I mean, think about me. I, I feel intimidated around church folk. Man, they're talking about all this stuff. I mean, tell the truth. If we could be honest, I don't even know if Abraham's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. I'm nodding, and look, but I don't even know. And so you feel intimidated. You feel like you don't have something to offer because I didn't get a Christian background. I grew up being totally steeped in the world. Man, I'm way behind all these people, at least the ones who grew up in the faith. They got all this training. They got all, I don't know the Bible stories. They know them all. I don't know. They know all that stuff. I don't. I'm, I'm secondary. How could God ever use me? Hey, it's my experience, and I think many of you would validate this. And when I look around, it is often, it is often people who, uh, who are in your situation that I described that God uses fantastically, powerfully, it is people with simple faith. It's the new believer. It's the person who's not bringing cynicism, but childlike faith to the Lord. It's the person who says, I don't know much, but I know Jesus died and rose for my sins, and I love him. That person, God uses to change the world. It, it's not, you're not penalized because you don't have a spiritual pedigree of some sort. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you have a Bible uh, and you're part of a people that are serving the Lord. God wants to do powerful things through you. And you may think, I can't share with an, the gospel with another person. I can't reach out to another person. Pete talked about being afraid of what other people will think of me. What, what if I admit I'm, I'm a Christian? I don't know all the answers. They're going to ask hard questions. And, you know, hey, God wants to use you. You are not penalized by your background. Now, let's learn. Let's don't stay ignorant. Let's get you in a study. Let's get you in a one-to-one Bible study. Talk to one of the pastors. We can help you find a group. Let's get you in the Bible. Let's get you some resources. Let's help you find out if Abraham's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Let's get you some of the basics down. So don't remain where you are, but don't ever think you've got to reach a certain level before God could use you. God's going to take a pagan and say, through you, Jesus will come and the whole world will be blessed. And it's not because of his theological knowledge. It's not because of his godly background. It's not because of his righteousness. It's because God's a God of grace who works through unlikely people. So please don't hold back. Or maybe you feel in, in other ways it works like that. How am I going to raise my kids? I wasn't raised in a Christian family. How do I know how to train the next generation? Well, let's get you some help. And let's also realize that God is going to work through you as you apply yourself. God, God, you're going to be the start of a godly heritage. No, you don't have a godly heritage, but guess what? It starts with you, and it's going to go through you for generation after generation, people that know Jesus. What a tremendous privilege. You think, well, my background, I didn't come grow up being a Christian. Yeah, but you get to be the patriarch and matriarch of a lineage of Christians. What a joy that is to have that role in your life. That's a high calling. So don't count yourself out because of your background. This happens in a lot of ways. Maybe it's your personality. 
Uh, you just feel like, I, God can't use me. I'm, uh, it's, I'm not a likely person. I was thinking, praying about this and thinking about illustrations, and this just came to mind. So this might be from the Lord. I'm not going to say thus say the Lord, but it might be. But I felt particularly to address people who would self-describe as introverts. And you think, because of the way I am, because of who, maybe it's the way I was raised, maybe it's my personality, maybe it's the way I'm wired, I'm just an introvert. And you know what the problem is? Many, not all, or maybe not even most, many of the leaders in the church are extroverts. And so you go, they don't get me. They say, let's all go out and love everybody. I just want to read a book at home by myself. (laughs) So it's great, you boisterous people who say, let's all get together and have a party. I don't want to have a party. And that's just the way you are. And you say, how is God going to ever use me? I love Jesus. I just don't like people. Uh, It's not that bad. Not that bad. But I'm just not, people aren't gathered. People don't gather to me. I don't know what to say in social situations. Okay, so now I'm not mocking. I'm being very serious. And you feel that way. And man, I don't think the pastors get me. I don't think the small group leaders get me. I don't think a lot of people get me. They're all out there and being together and we love the Lord. And, and I just can, can I be alone? I, I, that's where I find energy and strength. And you want to be alone with the Lord. You read your Bible. That's great. But you don't, you don't feel like you are able to do certain things. I just want to encourage you that, first of all, God wants to use your gifts um, given the personality that you have, all of us. God's given you personality. He wants to use you. Uh, God may want to change you, probably does, to step out of your comfort zone and trust him. But here's what I want to encourage you. When you're an unexpected person and you reach out and God works through you, here's the testimony. The Lord is powerful. When it's the boisterous guy who's out you know, yucking it up with everybody, and and the Lord does something to that guy. Everybody says, well, yeah, of course. I mean, look at her personality. Look at her bent. She's so friendly. She's so hospitable. But listen, if that's not you, when you invite someone over in hospitality, when you get together with someone for coffee, when you take initiative to ask someone how they're doing and take an interest in their life, uh, even though that's maybe sometimes a little bit of a challenge, when you step forth and do that, God's going to meet you in a powerful way, and you're going to see his grace on display. Those who know you well aren't going to say, oh, it's just her personality. She'd do that no matter what religion she was in. It's just his personality. That's just who they are. No, it's going to be a testimony of God. My point is, when something's unlikely for us and we step out in faith and God uses us, his grace is on display. So where are you limiting God tonight? Where are you saying, well, I just can't because that's, that's my background. That's my makeup. That's my personality. That's my gifts. I'm too young. You're not too young. If you know Jesus, you're not too young. He wants you in the game right now. He don't want you wasting your teenage years, your college years, your 20s. He does not want you wasting them. He wants you investing your life for him and bearing fruit and making a, distance, a difference right now. I'm too old. Hey, we need older people to drop some wisdom on us. We need some wisdom bombs dropped on us around here. We need you. We need you. So it's not like there's not something, you're the most, biblically, you're the most valuable people. If, I mean, nobody's really more valuable, but you've got more to offer with regard to wisdom than anyone else. Biblically, the, the, the elderly are honored. I'm going to start, the older I'm getting, I'm reading that verse more out publicly and reminding people <laughs> about that. So uh, I don't have any gifts. Or I have limited gifts. No, the Lord's given you something, and he, wants to, he may give you new gifts, which will be, whoa, look at the grace of God on display. 
You, embrace the unlikeliness because God works through unlikely people. I, I don't have a lot of money. How can I reach out to anybody? How can I serve? I want to bless somebody. I don't have any money. I live in this super rich area. I grew up without any money. I don't have much money now. I feel so out of place in this North Dallas kind of culture where it seems like everybody has all this stuff and I, I'm probably not as, I just don't fit and what can I? No, the Lord wants to use you. you he loves to use unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. What he's looking for is willing people who will follow and obey him. I mean, you look down at 12.1, the Lord said to Abraham, go. Verse 4, 12.4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Now the idolaters getting it going. Now he's following the one God and the Lord's going to do great things from him. It's not going to be victory to victory. He's going to have some challenging seasons, but the Lord's going to use him. Unlikely people. Number two, unlikely circumstances. Uh, We're not only introduced to unlikely people, but also people who have unlikely circumstances. Now, here's a a point of interpretation. Whenever you read a, and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so, or so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, I actually passed over a few verses like that. Whenever you get that, and then all of a sudden something is put in there that's not so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, that's a real key. Wow, there's something different popping up in the text. That's important. Because it was so-and-so, it was father of so-and-so, it was the father of so-and-so, and and they died at 100 years old, and they were father of so-and-so. And and we get something else? Okay, what is, what, that, there's a purpose to that. That's exactly what we get in this text. 27 through 29, we get Tara's family. Verse 30, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. She had no child. That, that, that she, she was infertile, and she did not have a child. Now, that's not just trivia. It's a very important detail. Infertility, was, it's challenging. It's a, it's a tremendous... Couples that go through that, it is a gut-wrenching uh, difficulty that is with infertile couples daily. So it is always difficult. In their culture, it was particularly difficult um, because a few things. Oftentimes in the ancient Near East, a woman's value was tied to childbearing in a way that would not be true today. Uh, Invertility meant the end of the family line, uh, and that's a big deal because then you don't have farmhands to work your farm. Uh, you don't have sons to protect you. Uh, you don't have sons and daughters to care for you in your old age. We have a lot of safety nets. They didn't have any of those. So to not have children was a really, really big deal. But the, but the reason it's, most reason it's a really big deal is that her, uh, that her barrenness is identified is because the point is that God is choosing a couple to birth a nation and they can't conceive. They're, they're very, very unlikely. They're very, very unlikely. They can't conceive. Verses 12, 1 through 3 shows us that the Lord said to them, uh, you know, I, or verse 2, I will make you a great nation. That means you're going to have people that come from you. You're not going to be the end of the line. I will bless you and make your name great. I'll bless those who bless you. So they're going to have a, they're going to become a nation and yet they have no children and they cannot have children. These are unlikely people. Everything we just said about them was, wow, these are not the people I would pick to start the uh, Jewish and then the Christian religion. I'd probably be looking somewhere else. So I wouldn't pick it. But then, oh, you're going to be a whole nation. And, you, and when they leave, we find out in verse 4, they're 75 years old. 
And after the flood, people started living lifespans more like ours. You know, before the flood, you get those genealogies and some people were like making up to 900 or something. So you're going, well, 75, man, if 75 years old, you haven't even hit puberty if you're going to live to 900. So of course you don't have kids or whatever. But after the flood, they start living lifespans more similar to ours. Some of them live over 100, but more similar. And so 75 is old. It's old. And so he's coming, we're going to make a nation out of you and you are really old for having babies and this is, the Lord just wants that to say, why does he tell us that? He just wants it to stand out because it's going to be in their whole story. Her being able to conceive is going to be a big part of their story. But it's a bigger part of God's story that he uses people in unlikely circumstances. It's exactly how God scripted it intentionally. These are not people who, man, they're a long shot to be the father of the faith. Man, it's going to be a real challenge to build a nation out of that couple. No, it's impossible. It's impossible to have a nation of people come from a couple that aren't having children. It's impossible. And that's why that that's verse 30 is all about. It's screaming at us. God selects people in unlikely circumstances because the story will be that God brings salvation and no man or no woman will get credit for it. And so God delights to walk into circumstances that are difficult, that are hard, and are impossible, and do the impossible. That's the whole Bible. That's who God is. And so this is what we find about this, this guy, his, uh, Abram and his wife, Sarah. The father of the faith who will birth a nation, who will bring forth the Savior, who will crush the serpent's head, is a pagan worshiper of other gods, He's settled in a land of pagan worshipers. He's married to his half-sister who is unable to have children, making his calling impossible. God's telling him to do something impossible for him. And they start out on their journey at 75 years old. That's grace. That's the Bible. That's how God works. God glorifies himself by working in this way. It's the pattern we see over and over, and it's never more clear in the Bible than, than what we see in Jesus Christ. It's the pattern we see in Jesus Christ. I mean, what could be more unlikely in terms of human wisdom than God bringing salvation uh, through a man, Jesus? Think about his birth. I mean, he is, what's unlikely for the king of the universe, the God of the universe, to be born and, and not to a woman who's barren, but to a virgin. He's born to a virgin, and he's laid in a, in a cattle stall. He's put in a cattle stall, the God of the universe. He, he lives in a nondescript village. He works a regular job. He's a carpenter. He's building tables and... Um, what, what, you know, what, I don't know exactly the furniture of the day, but he's just building... Uh, building regular carpentry type of stuff. And and here he is, just a regular guy. That is surprising. He's God, he's perfect, but he's living a very nondescript life growing up. Not what you would expect. And when he comes, he doesn't do what the people would expect if God came. He comes and he irritates and he rebukes religious people and he becomes welcomed by tax collectors. He becomes welcomed by prostitutes. He becomes welcomed by the poor. He never sins, but he brings the good news to people that are needy. 
He doesn't leave them in their sins. He, he frees them from them, but he comes to them in their sins. He doesn't separate himself from them. He comes to them. That's not expected. The religious people did not expect it. How unexpected. The innocent dies for the guilty. The most uh, surprising thing in the story is that he actually dies and that he dies for our sins. He's innocent. The one who invented the sacrificial system becomes a sacrifice for our sins. It's unexpected. Everything about the story is people didn't see it. That's why they killed him. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. A weak Messiah, a suffering Messiah, a dead Messiah, how can that be? That's why Paul says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the world. That's another way to look at it. God works in ways that the culture would look on and say, that's foolish. That message is foolish. It's unbelievable. It doesn't seem sound logically or scientifically. Uh, it's just one way. There's many truths. You have your truth, my truth. That, that, that is nonsense that you're talking about. Why is that? Because people who don't know Christ have their eyes veiled, and so things look foolish to them that make sense to the person who has come alive and has the Spirit of God in them. And so through the sharing of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the lights go off, and people gives new, give, God gives new life to people who believe, obviously. He gives new life, and they believe. But... Um, uh, but it's foolish to those who don't. God's purposes run contrary to the wisdom of man. Who would have picked Abraham and Sarah for God to make a covenant with? Who would have picked them? Who would have picked them to be the one that the Savior would come through many generations later? Who would have guessed that through this guy and his world, salvation would come? And that we'd be sitting here singing songs to Jesus, praying, hearing his word, being among the people, who would, have, who would have ever figured that it starts here? That's where it really starts. Really, the story of God building Israel, his people, starts in chapter 12 with this Abrahamic promise and then runs on through the rest uh, of the Bible. So it's, it's amazing how God works. God chooses by grace to redeem and to work through sinners. And he chooses to use sinners for fulfilling, to fulfill his ministry. And he, he chooses you and he chooses me to work through us. Now, we aren't playing a role in redemptive history. I mean, like we're not doing what Abraham did. He's kind of in the history of how God brings redemption. Uh, but God does want every one of us to not be counted out in our minds based on our background, based on our gifting, based on our abilities, based on our limitations. God wants us to embrace our limitations. God wants us to, Paul actually celebrates his weaknesses. God wants us to be aware of what we cannot do. And then God wants us to trust him and watch him do amazing things through people that have tremendous limitations and sins and weaknesses and ignorance and all sorts of stuff. We're all called to be used by God. If we're believers in Jesus, he wants to use us. He wants you to be a fruitful witness in a dark and in a dying world. The problem is we so often have our eyes on ourselves that we're just so aware of all of our burdens, our challenges, our problems, what we can't do, and we don't lift our eyes to the Lord to say, what can he do? And more than that, what does he want to do through me? And so we live lives that, 
that we just fritter away with very little expectation of what God could do, very little expectation that it could be different. Just stuck in a rut, this is the way it's always going to be because we have, don't have our eyes on the God who celebrate, delights to use unlikely people and take their unlikely circumstances and use them for his glory. You know, at times we grow discouraged because of our circumstances that hinder us. We grow discouraged about them. We just want them out of our lives. But we also just grow discouraged sometimes that how can God use me in this circumstance? And it's that very circumstance that God wants to work through. If I get my eyes off the difficulty and trust him, what could he do through this? We think, man, I, I'm chronically ill. Uh, we think, someone who's chronically ill says, how could God possibly use me? Some of those powerful testimonies that I have ever seen in my life, some of those powerful visions of the Lord, if I could say, not literal, but impressions of the Lord that I've ever seen is people in difficult, suffering circumstances physically glorifying the Lord. When someone's doing great and they're saying, praise the Lord, uh, well, good, we should praise the Lord when we're going great. But that just doesn't ring in the same way when someone battles day in, day out, and there's a smile on their face, and there's a word of kindness, and they're celebrating the Lord. You say, that is holy, that is precious, and it's the very weakness that the Lord wants to shine through in that way. So what is it for you? Or, or, or there's uh, or, uh, uh, difficulties with health, difficulties with finances, a lack of experience. Some of us count ourselves out because we just say, well, I don't have any experience. I don't know that much. There's a lot more gifted people than I am. Man, God throughout the Bible is descending on people and using them uh, in ways that they're not experienced. By the way, how do you get experience? You, you, you have to, you're, everybody's inexperienced at some point. The Lord wants to use us. So what is it for you? Maybe a perceived lack of spiritual maturity. Sometimes the people who don't think they're very spiritually mature are the most mature people in the room. Biblically, the person who assesses themselves the most spiritually mature in the room, it probably ain't so. Anybody saying, I'm the most godly guy here tonight, okay? Go to the back of the line, please, because <laughs> you're not... <laughs> It's the person who, think, who, who oftentimes has a genuine humility and a gen, an accurate self-assessment that is ready to say, God, use me in a powerful way. Uh, we compare ourselves to others or, you know, whatever. When the Lord just wants us to look at him and say, what can, I, what can you do through me? Maybe you say, I'm the only believer in my family. How could, how could God ever use me? I'm the only believer in my family. Think about the limitation that is. Well, it takes one to have more believers. Somebody had to believe first. Maybe the Lord wants to use you to lead others to him. Or I, my spouse isn't a believer. My kids aren't believers. I just feel this so, I'm just so hemmed in. How could the Lord use me in that situation? The Lord can use you powerfully in that situation. He wants to use you. He will use you. Your fruitfulness is not hindered by your limitations. Rather, the scripture teaches that our limitations enhance our usefulness to service in God, to serve the Lord. They enhance. They are, that's our credibility. That is our, that's our basis for receiving God's help is that I'm not, I don't have this in me. I can't do this. I need God. Now you're ready. I need, I'm limited. Now you're postured. God help. Now you're, you're ready to be used.
by God, by him. And here, the grace of God is he is going to build a nation out of someone who likely is not even looking for God, someone who's not qualified, someone who doesn't have circumstances where God goes, wow, that guy's ready to go. No. It's an impossible calling, and God works through him and does an impossible work. And it's true for us as a church, too. It's just true for us as a church. I think the Lord's given a calling to us as a people, not because we're special, because he's great. I think the Lord's given us a calling that is just way beyond us. It's just, it's just way beyond us. I mean, what are we doing? We're sitting here with our like one speaker and our uncarpeted hallways. What are we doing? We're just kind of trying to serve the Lord and do the best we can and preach the gospel. And I think the Lord is opening a door for us and saying, okay, I'm going to place you in a context uh, you're not very likely. We're not a, we're not a powerful people. I mean, I, was just, I haven't surveyed the whole church, but I think around, I, it's not like we're like, whoa, that's, those are the people. Throw them in the center of, city, of the city. And they got a lot of pro athletes in the church and, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs. We don't have any of that, okay? We, they got tons of, you know, uh, you got people in the entertainment industry that everyone knows. This is just like a church. Put them out there because they're natural. We're not that. And yet the Lord says, hey, just take your plain old self and with all your limitations and trust the Lord. He's got a great calling on you. I feel like that's what he's saying. I've got a great calling on you. This isn't about how great Abraham is. It's about how great God is. And the very point that we're not impressed with Abraham and his wife glorifies the Lord. So the very point, welcome to the guests here, that we're very unimpressive, and you've probably noticed by now, but let me go ahead and tell you in case you were deceived. We're very unimpressive, and yet we serve a very impressive God who wants to impress others by his glory through unimpressive people. That's what it is. Not many wise, not many powerful is what Paul said. He said to the Corinthians, you, you guys don't have that much going for you, okay? Let me just tell it like it is. You guys... You guys don't have that much going for you. And that's true of, of all of us. That's true of our church. That's true of us. We have Jesus, and that's all that we need. So I feel like the Lord wants to get our eyes off ourselves and actually embrace limitations, embrace a background that would say, hey, I'm limited because of my background. No, you serve an unlimited God who by grace wants to work through you. I think he wants to take our eyes off our church and say, wow, really, are we going to do that? Seriously, that's like a big deal. Yes, because we serve a great God. Get our eyes on the harvest field. Get our eyes on the Lord. Get our eyes off our limitations and say, Lord, this is the very way you work. It is all over the Bible. The right, God always picks people that are unexpected. It's the pattern. It's David, who's not even among the brothers. Oh, we're looking for a king. Where are your sons? Well, they're here. Well, it's none of them. It's somebody else. Well, we do have this other kid who's out in the field. Go get him. He's the king. He's the, that's the one. Peter, who's impetuous, an impetuous disciple, puts his foot in his mouth constantly. Of all the disciples, he sins more with his speech than any of them. Yeah, that's the guy we're going to have up on the grand opening of the church when the Holy Spirit comes down. That's the guy I want speaking for us and proclaiming the gospel to start the church. He's the least likely guy to be the spokesman based on the number of times he sins with his tongue. And yet Jesus says, that's the guy we're going to work in him. We're going to fill him with the Spirit. We're going to forgive him. And he will be the spokesman. Paul writes most of the New Testament. He is smart. He is theological. He can take a beating. He's a tough guy, okay? So he is, he has a lot going for him, except that he hates Jesus and is killing Christians, which is sort of disqualifying for writing the New Testament. 
Sort of. That's sort of a problem. And yet, who does he say? Okay, I'll take that guy who's killing Christians. I'll knock him to the ground. I'll blind him. And I'll say, why are you persecuting me? Serve me. And I'll send that guy out to write the New Testament. Unlikely. And you're no different. And I'm no different. And most importantly, God's no different. And so how does Genesis 1 through 11, it, it, it goes into the history of God's people. It's the birthing of God's people. And we find this and we just see God's mercy after people tried to make a name for themselves. Now he is going to pick one and he's going to work through his family so that God makes a name for himself by his glory. And Jesus will come uh, many, many chapters later. Uh, you can read of his coming. Let's, let's pray. God, we lift our eyes to you, and we just confess that we, we do not look at people the way you do. We assess the smart and the wealthy and the attractive. Uh, we, we just assess them as they, they must be the ones you're going to use. And Lord, that you delight to use all kinds of people. And we just thank you for that. I thank you that every Christian in this room has a profound calling on their life a profound calling to their job and their work, a profound calling to their family, a profound calling to their marriage if they're married and to their kids if they have kids, to their parents. Lord, you've given us these glorious, gloriously dignified roles to be ambassadors for Christ. Who are we to be an ambassador? To, to, be, to be your spokesman, to be light in the darkness. Lord, we don't feel like light. We feel like our light's dim oftentimes. Lord, to bring healing to the hurting, to bring good news to those who are, who are broken, to bring your freedom to those who are captive. Lord, it's a glorious calling, and we look at ourselves and we just say, I can't do that. I, I can't even lead my own life, much less be out preaching the gospel to others. Lord, we, we just confess that we have self-pity. Oftentimes, we're self-oriented frequently. We're self-focused And Lord, we just confess, so many of our limitations just come from unbelief and self-focus. And we repent, and we ask you to give us faith in you, that you are a God who picks unlikely people in unlikely circumstances to bring the good news of Jesus. You want to use everyone in this room, and I pray that you would lift our eyes to you, and you would stir faith in our hearts, that we really would turn from unbelief, we really would turn from fear, as we prayed about earlier tonight. We really would turn from figuring it out and we know who you're going to use and who's qual. Lord, just help us trust you and humble ourselves, we pray, Lord. Help us and do great things through us, I pray as well. I pray that you would use each of our lives uh, to magnify your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.com dot o-r-g